So welcome to the show. My name is Mohamed Kalaji. I'm an AWS community builder and software developer at Zero and One. Today I'm with Eddie. Eddie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so my name is Eddie Hinkle. I'm an engineering manager at Glassdoor. Um, I focus on design systems and front-end foundations. So that's like the frameworks and libraries that all front-end engineers at Glassdoor use. Um, yeah, I've been in tech as a software developer for over a decade. And yeah, I just love chatting about technology and how we use it as humans, what it means to us and uh, meeting new people. So thank you for having me on. So you currently work as an engineering manager at Glassdoor. Would you like to talk more about Glassdoor? What does it offer and what does it, uh, the services it offers in general? Yeah, absolutely. So most people know Glassdoor as like, you know, the review site. Um, but really Glassdoor's mission is to help you find a job and company that loves you back. And so they do this through anonymous conversations, right? We started with anonymous reviews where people can go on the website and say, Hey, I work at this company and this is what it's like to work there. They can give, you know, ratings to the CEO and different things like that. And, um, the next step of that was ratings for interviews, right? What is the interview process like? Cause like sometimes it's nice to work at a company, but it's horrendous to get through the interviews. And so there's interview ratings, um, and all of that's anonymous. And then more recently last year, we purchased a uh, anonymous professional social network called fishbowl. Um, and so we have begun integrating that into the Glassdoor experience so that, you know, people not only can give reviews, but they can also ask questions and say, Hey, you know, tag Google, tag Facebook or Meta and say, Hey, what is it like to work there? Right. I have this very specific question that applies to me, maybe questions about a specific department. And then people who work there can reply anonymously, but identified as working for that company. Um, so yeah, it's all about just building using anonymous conversations as a foundation for really finding a job that works, you know, the way that you need to work. So for example, let me just recap on this. So I go to Glassdoor, I log into my account, I would search for a job that let's say, for example, I want to work at Amazon as an example. Yeah. I would apply on the website to apply for Amazon, or I just see the reviews of the company and I see the, how people's interview process get into it. Some people might share some information about the interview process altogether, or it's like I apply on the website so I can get a job at Amazon because let's say I'll take example of Amazon because they have a jobs portal and from the jobs portal, you do apply for the job or just, you see the reviews of the company or the people who work, who work there. Yeah. So it's a kind of a combination. So, um, we, um, partner with indeed. So when you go to Glassdoor, you can see jobs that are available, right? That like are listed on indeed, which obviously is like the biggest job site, you know, ever. Um, and so you can get indeed results, but then we mix those with the information that people have given us. So you find out, yeah, Hey, there's a front end engineering job at Amazon. And then you're like, well, but what's it like to work at Amazon? So then you can click in and say, well, what kind of reviews have people left for Amazon? And you can click in and look to see how they rated specific dimensions. Like, oh, you know, 
how they rated the benefits. Maybe the benefits are what matters to you, or maybe it's like work-life balance. You can see how people rated work-life balance. So um, it's both finding the jobs that exist that have openings and then looking into those companies and figuring out if those companies give you what you need. Yeah. So you work at Glassdoor as an engineering manager of design and front-end foundations. What are the requirements for an engineering manager and what is like the qualifications for someone to become an engineering manager in general? So it's not necessarily, let's say, an engineering manager as just front-end, but in like in a general term, in a general yeah. sense, if you want to talk. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So, you know, what it takes to be an engineering manager is really a combination of two things, right? You need to un you need to be technical. You need to understand the technical trade-offs and technical decision-making that happens. So you need experience as an engineer. Um, I've actually talked to people who have started down the engineering manager track, um, maybe, you know, just after a couple of years. And, you know, they've been successful as a people manager, but now being at like the director level and the senior director level, like I've heard, had people tell me in confidence, like, I actually wish I had been an engineer longer because sometimes I feel a little bit less stable in the technical discussions. Um, so definitely you need a good solid foundation of time as a software engineer. Um, but you also don't want to just see an engineering manager as the next step. Um, for a software engineer, right? A lot of companies have an individual contributor path where you can become a lead and a principal engineer and all those things so you can stay focused on the code. If you're thinking about becoming an engineering manager, one of the things that you really want, like need to be passionate about is about helping people succeed, right? Helping mentor people, helping coach people. It's very people-focused, Um Instead of just having like, hey, I need to finish project A, B, and C. The things you do kind of don't end, right? They evolve and they change, but you don't have as good of checkbox feeling of, oh, I just finished this code. I made this commit. I uh, finished this project. And then there's a lot of coordination, right? Working with your team, working between teams, you become the glue for your team and other teams. And particularly, you become the umbrella for everyone above your team, right? So different companies have dynamics with different, you know, people up the food chain. And your job is to protect your team from any bad decisions from, you know, senior management and things like that at that company, right? To help kind of keep them focused on their job and their world that they can um, work on rather than getting distracted by kind of, you know, sometimes the whims of, of senior management. I haven't thankfully run into that at Glassdoor, but working at previous companies, right? Sometimes you have to be that buffer for your team. So I'm just going to get like an idea about this. So if let's say, for example, I've been software development for like 10 years, as an example, I've decided to become, let's say like a scrum master and I got the certifications, does this qualify me to be like an engineering manager? I've, let's say for example, I've already passed, yeah. let's say the tech lead or a principal. So I've already dived my hand at the code, but I've learned the people management part, let's say like Scrum. I got the certification. I've worked with, let's say for example, a year on Scrum or managing people. Does this qualify me as an engineering manager at some level? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, you know, you'd probably be an intro level engineering manager, right? Like there's obviously like intro, senior level, right? There are different like levels of responsibility. So you probably wouldn't jump in at the highest level of responsibility, but yeah, you'd get a couple of direct reports, right? And then you're responsible for helping them level up their career, right? Writing reviews for them, um, either annually or semi-annually, um, having one-on-ones and giving them feedback. Like how can they improve? What, you know, challenges are they running into? And really finding what is a very heavy in like, conversation, one-on-one conversation, uh, you know, giving feedback. Like if you're not, you know, if you, if you don't like confrontation, like it can be a difficult position because you will oftentimes find yourselves in confrontation, right? And you have to know how to handle that well. Like you don't want to like come and yell at someone, but you still have to tell them something that's a little bit confrontational that they may not agree with. And so um, that's definitely a big aspect. Um, so also as well, and working at Glassdoor, you also work as the front end foundations. So you make, mainly focus on system design and front end foundations. You mean like you organize stuff on the front end from a design and code perspective, or let's take, for example, if let's say React.js, since it's not opinionated. So let's say some developer might choose this library, some person might choose this state manager or something like that. So your point of of your job is to coordinate all of those developers to fixate on one thing, because this is the optimal thing for this project. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is pretty accurate. Um, so yeah, we, you know, product engineers view their stakeholders or customers as the end users. And we view our stakeholders and end users as the other front end developers in the company. Um, so we, kind of do two things. Design system is about making sure we maintain information for like the visual design of Glassdoor. And part of that is a component library, a component library for iOS, a component library for Android, a component library for the web. And so, you know, when someone needs a button or someone needs a dropdown, they don't have to create that from scratch. We kind of maintain that as kind of like a internal open source repo so they can they can do pull requests and say, hey, we need this new feature in a dropdown, um, but we are the maintainers of that project. So we look and go, uh, that starts to make it a little bit too nitpicky. Like that should probably be in your own code. Or we say, hey, that's a great feature. Let's pull that into, you know, our component library. So maintaining the, you know, uh, I guess similarities across all of our microservices um, is the goal of the design system. And that's something we run. And we have several designers on our team and a product manager on our team, um, as well as front-end engineers. And then, yeah, from the front-end foundation side, that's exactly what it is. We use React.js. And for a long time, we've had an internal uh, Node.js server that does server-side rendering and serves that to the client. And we realized that's not really maintainable. So recently, like we researched a bunch of options and my team realized what we need to do is use Next.js because it's open source. It's already available. It works with React for us. And so, yeah, so we kind of did a pilot of that project. We connected with the different areas of the company, different front end engineers and said, hey, how does this work for you? You know, and like ask questions about their projects and what they need and made sure that Next.js is something that will actually work for everyone across the company. And now we are building libraries to 
allow them to use Next.js, but still do all the things that they need to do within the Glassdoor ecosystem. So it's really about, yeah, making sure we get reusable tools and we equip them to be able to be as efficient as possible so that they can focus on the product that they're building and not the tools that they're using as much. So um, as an example, let's say you created the front end foundations. So everyone should have the exact same, let's say, design schema of Glassdoor. But what does it affair if, let's say, you use something that's already existing? Let's say, like, for example, like Tailwind, it already has all the classes for you finished up. It's all responsive. All you need to do is just put the Glassdoor's color schema and you might have the a similar thing without writing that much code. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, that's definitely right a factor. Um, but we, we basically try to make sure we have all the tools. So like as a front-end foundations team, like we evaluate Tailwind, we evaluate... Um, okay, do we want to use like an off-the-box component library, you know, bootstrap, right? We evaluate all those things and figure out what do we want to build in-house? What do we want to reuse? Um, and, and we basically kind of have an open door where like if a developer finds a better way to do something, we want them to like try it out and bring it up to us and see if it's something that can work across the company. Um, we don't really want people just grabbing something new, putting it in without talking to us, because then all the different teams start to use different stuff. And then if people move between teams and things like that, like there's there's not a consistency to the code. So we are kind of the maintainers of code consistency in a way. Um, but we work with the people in the company to figure out what is it they need. So recently um, we were using kind of a homegrown like form library, as well as another area was using like an open source uh, React form library. And a group of people were like, hey, this isn't really working for us. We need a newer, more modern React frame form library. So they are doing a pilot right now. They picked out three ones that look good and they are trying to redo a single page in all three of those. And then they're going to come back to the team and say, hey, here's where those were good and here's where those were bad. And then we'll decide as a team and a company, which one are we going to stick with? And then we'll have that as this is now the form library that we use inside of Glassdoor. And so then all the front end engineers can know, and we kind of maintain the documentation to say, Hey, this, if you need a form library, this is the one for you. But isn't like handling like a pilot for testing out things, isn't it a little bit costy on the company at some level? Like some companies can't afford to do, let's say, a pilot at some some degree. Yeah, it definitely depends on how big the company is, right? And how many people you can employ, right? If you're if you're a small startup moving at breakneck speed, you're gonna want your process to be very minimal because it's more important to get your product to market. Um, as you get into bigger and larger companies like Glassdoor and right, eventually Amazon and Google the consistency and stability of the system starts to become more important than getting to market because you can get it to market, but then if it, when you want to add new features or change things, or when you have higher new employees, right? The ability at which the new employee can get up to speed is sometimes more important than how fast like one person can get a a product out the door. Um, because you're working at a larger scale. So I think that's definitely a big factor in having an 
internal team, um, like Glassdoor does focused on front end foundations is you need to have enough engineers and be hiring enough engineers to be able to make that team worth it and make things like doing pilots worth it to make sure that you're making the right decision and that no one's going to have to like, if you're doing a pilot for the same type of thing every like year, then you're doing it wrong. Like your pilot should be verifying that this thing's going to work for the next several years for the company. So. So I'm going to move to another question, which is you worked as an engineering director of user experience at ThreatConnect. Your work there included helping the team reduce context shifting, keep top priorities clear and encourage team collaboration along with hiring new teammates. Would you like to talk more about this along with the hurdles of managing a big team? So it's similar to how you basically you're managing your team at Glassdoor, but I think the amount of people at Glassdoor is a bit much more than ThreatConnect, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think like the people reporting to me at Glassdoor is actually less than the people that reported to me at ThreatConnect. But obviously the number of employees at Glassdoor is much larger than the number of employees that were at ThreatConnect um, as that was a smaller startup. Um, so yeah, I have a relatively small team that reports to me directly. I mean, I would say our whole team like designers, product manager, and everyone included is probably like mm, one, two, three, four, five, six, like six or seven, like on our team. Cause we're kind of just, like I said, kind of the open source repository maintainers and like we help. Um, but like, we don't do all the work ourselves um, at threat connect, all of the front end development and designers reported to me. So it was a team of eight or nine. Um, we had designer, um, we had one designer, we were working on hiring another um, before I left. And then we had several UX engineers um, that were really kind of focused on the, bridging the gap between front end development and design. And then we had a handful of front end engineers themselves um, working more on the logic and the application side of things rather than like the components and um, the visual side of things, which the, the UX engineers were working on. Um, so yeah, that there was a lot going on there, right? Everyone that did any kind of front-end development reported to me. And so I was not doing any hands-on code. Um, I wasn't even overseeing like one project. I was overseeing work on all the applications and all the projects. Um, so it was really about, you know, being a coach and helping, yeah, coordinate and make sure that like the team that was working, so ThreatConnect's a cybersecurity um, software as a service. So we had like um, case management, which is, you know, kind of like, oh, there's an incident and, you know, an analyst needs to investigate that. And we had threat intel, which is like, oh, we need to make sure we're analyzing the latest stuff that's been happening, right? Like there's a new hack on this company and there's a news article that comes out about it. They need to read that news article, collect that information and put it into our software as a service to understand what threats are out there and be proactive and defensive. So in one way, your team is like responding to emergencies and the other side, you know, which is like offensive. And then you've got like the defensive trying to make sure that no one can get into your, your thing. And so we had two different teams working on each of those systems. And then we had like a core system team that was making sure that like 
the platform itself was good, right? And that like automation was working and things like that. So um, yeah, just making sure all those miss, you know, different pieces uh, were all headed in the same direction without them having to like have meetings every day or, or something like that. So I was kind of helping create that coordination um, and help, you know, manage coordination with like my peers, right? There was a manager in charge of all of our database and backend. And, you know, there's a person in charge of all the product managers. And so making sure we are all heading in the same direction and that like the features that were coming down six months down the line, a year down the line were fleshed out and that they were the right direction. Yeah. So speaking of being a coach, you also participated as a mentor for ADB List and the Colab uh, Lab. Uh, what are the requirements for someone to be considered as a mentor? And what is your expectations when dealing with someone as a mentor? So let's say, for example, expectations where someone might be high technical level, but needs some refinements, or would you consider most people, let's say like lower technical people that you want to try to help them? I've tried mentoring people that give you like a personal experience. I've tried mentoring people who, who come from one different background to another. So I've been mentoring someone who was working ASP.NET for like five to six years and teaching her to move towards writing front end with React.js. It took a lot of time, by the way, but she finally got a job, which is really good. That's she shifted awesome. to, to a different, uh, to a different uh, a company, a different role and everything. She's totally happy. It took the process around two years of mentorship. Don't it's, it's a lot, but I've been like following up on everything she was doing. But uh, the thing is, is that her technical level in ASP.NET was a lot different than React. So there's a lot of shifting, even though she comes from a high technical level. So there's some background of, let's say, uh, data structures and writing algorithms. So when you, let's gotcha. say, for example, you're doing for being a mentor, would you be more of a mentor for someone who's more like high technical level that you need to give them some requirements? Or would you, we're mentoring people who are like low level, we're trying to introduce them to something, trying to teach them into it, or it was a mix between both? Yeah, so I would say the majority of the people who I have mentored um, tend to be a lower technical level and looking to get into tech. Um, that isn't necessarily just like, the preference I had, I really just kind of made myself available. And like, those were the people who were looking for mentors. And so I was happy to, to help. Um, like, as far as my expectations, I, I am a high enough technical level. Like I have been happy to help people like anywhere in their stage. Right. So if they're trying to get break into tech, if they're trying to shift tech, or if they're trying to figure out if they want to become an engineering manager or, you know, an individual contributor, maybe they're senior and they're trying to say, okay, the next path from senior is either engineering manager or heading up into like a staff engineer. And they're like, what do I want to do? Um, so yeah, so I am familiar with all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, the majority of the people I've helped have really been trying to break into tech. Um, oftentimes they have another career, um, like in one person I talked to was in higher education, right. And they're trying to break into tech. Um, I haven't, it, it hasn't been as much technical discussion as far as like career and job hunting discussion um, is really how I've helped them the most. Typically, they're also in like a boot camp or some other program that is helping them learn how to do things technically. Um, and then I'm helping come alongside them and like helping them think through 
how to try to get the job, right? Once they're done with the technical or um, if their technical approach is, um, if the boot camp they're going to is going to be a good one, right? Like, well, what, what are they teaching you? And, you know, is that actually going to be worth your time? Um, so that's mostly ADP list. Collab Lab is, you know, because ADP list, I'm just kind of a mentor on there. Someone can find me and um, ask to to have a session. The Collab Lab is an intentional thing where they build cohorts of four engineers and then they have several mentors. And really that is helping people. They've already learned the technical skills. It's more feedback about how do you work a job, right? How do you do a pro request? How do you meet and work on a project with other people? How do you write, you know, well, we already have the tickets written, but like, how do you look at a ticket, decide what needs to be built, right? Based on requirements and kind of that actual, like on the job collaboration stuff. Um, so that's what the collab lab is more about. And, um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to move to a, a question you might like it a lot more, which you have the core values that you have on your website. I'm going to list them. Uh, first one is value every person. Second is choose whimsy. Three is stand up for good. Four is lift in draft mode. Five is embrace empathy. Six is enjoy the ride. Seven is work hard, rest harder. And eight is prioritize longevity. Would you like to talk about those core values? Why you decided to list those core values up to the public? Like what's the purpose of having, let's say, core values? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, there's kind of two things there, right? Like why do I have them? And then secondly, why do I tell other people about them? So I think, you know, why I have them, it, serves as a sounding board for me, right? When I'm trying to make a decision, when I'm trying to do something, and if I'm conflicted between a couple of different areas, um, by having these values, I can look back and say, you know, for example, changing a job, right? I have a couple different opportunities, right? One job is going to work me to the bone, but man, it's going to pay some sweet money. You know what I mean? <laughs> and the other job is going to pay a little bit less, but they've got good work-life balance and they're you know, having a positive impact on society um, rather than maybe a negative impact on society, then looking back through these core values allows me to kind of disassociate myself from the actual decisions to be made and the temptation of, say, the money, um, you know, and look at the drawbacks and look and say, okay, does, will, does working at this job help me value every person, stand up for the good in the world, right? Does it help me uh, prioritize longevity or work hard and rest harder, right? If the, I'm working, you know, to myself to the bone, like that's not prioritizing longevity, right? And in the same way, like I can look and be like, okay, this company might not pay the most, but, you know, I'm going to be doing good in the world, right? They value people. Um, and yeah, like I think, I'm at a point in like product development, um, which is what I've done the majority of the time, you know, I'm doing more internal tooling now, but oftentimes building tools, like you can just end up building stuff that is, um, you know, functional, but not enjoyable. And so like I've choose whimsy, um, partly for that. And secondly, because I can really get focused on work and I forget to have fun myself. Um, so choose whimsy is, in some ways, just a reminder for me to 
just have fun in life and try to relax. Um, and I think, you know, everyone, myself included, you get nervous to write that blog post, to put out a tweet, to put yourself out there and live in draft mode just says, you know what? Like, I just need to let myself be like, put everything I have out there, not be too worried about how I come off. Um, like what people think about me. Um, I just need to say, Hey, like, I don't have everything figured out, but I'm going to do what I can. Right. And also assume that other people are also like living in draft mode, right? Like to not just say, Oh, this is a horrible person because they did a, B and C maybe like they're in draft mode and they just need to, to fix and tweak a bit of, you know, their decisions they're making. Um, so yeah, th that's why they really exist. Um, why I put them in public, um, partially it is to inspire other people, right? Like I hope that some people might, you know, be really bogged down and they are like, oh, hey, choose whimsy. What's, what's that about? And they kind of get inspired. They're like, you know what? I should have a little bit more, a little bit more fun in my life. Um, I also know like in the tech industry, um, you know, I work in the tech industry where there is not the most diversity, right, um, of people and things like that. And I, I am essentially the epitome of like the tech industry. Like I am a white cis male American. Like if you go down like the like list of what people expect the standard programmer to be, I probably match it. And so. Um, you know, my goal, like part of it is like a lot of people who match all the same things I do, they don't want to expand diversity in tech, right? They have different opinions that don't align with mine. And so part of putting the values out there is telling people, hey, here's what I believe, you know, like I believe like everyone's valuable. Like I believe everyone brings good to the job. Like I believe that, you know, tech is better when we have people of all races and people of all, you know, genders, like all coming together to solve problems, you know? So, um, really it's also just letting people know what I'm about and what I'm not about. <laughs> so it's more like, let's say I, I, let's say for an example, I'm going to give my example of myself. I journal every single day. So let's nice. say for example, I take the decision of I want to write, let's say I want to join this company. So I write down what my thoughts on this, maybe it's not paying me that much or, but I might enjoy the job and all of that. I've been, let's say I've been journaling for more than three years and I have like a, oh, wait a second. I take it to the next level. I have like fountain pen collections. Wow. So that's impressive. It, yeah, so I, I take it like to the next league kind of thing. But sometimes I would just sit down just to hype me up to write about it. So I t take this idea. So let's say your core values that you've already posted, that you've already posted about. I would just like take the decision from the core values or write down and say like, okay, maybe this company offers not the highest paycheck, but it might make me do something that's good for the people around me or a set of people out there. So I might consider the job. So the core values is more like you, you found out throughout your life that these are the things that did work with you. And you decided to like, Hey, I'm not going to just keep it to myself. I'm just going to share it out. Maybe someone else might benefit from it. It's yeah. Kind of like this kind of approach, if you want to say. 
Yeah, that's absolutely, that's, that's well said. That's exactly what it is. Um, and yeah, like you said, I kind of use these, you know, like to evaluate, you know, to evaluate things, decisions. Um, yeah. And you know, it's like at different stages in our life, different things are important. It's like, okay, if I look and I don't have much saved for retirement and I have a whole bunch of debt, maybe taking the job that works me to the bone, but pays me really good. Like that might align with prioritizing longevity, right? So it doesn't mean that like the company that works you long hours is necessarily the bad guy. Um, in my stage of life, like that's not what I want to do, but depending on your circumstances, like prioritizing longevity may say, yeah, take that job that you're going to be working a lot of hours, but it's going to pay you really well to get you from where you are today to where you want to be, um, in the future. So, um, yeah, like you said, it's just the things that I've, I've found, um, that kind of, uh, help me feel more of me. But are those like, let's say a biased kind of approach. So you've already set the rules. So maybe I might have a different kind of set of rules that might've worked for me. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Everyone may have different rules, right? And even my rules might change over time, right? Like, um, some of them won't, right? Like I've always, I've always believed I should value every person, right? Um, now how I interpret that has evolved over time, right? As I've learned new things. Um, but something like live in draft mode, I haven't always felt like, oh, I should just put myself out there and, and do whatever. Like I've been more nervous and shy and like held back. And one day I realized, you know what? It's not that scary. Like I tried putting myself out there sometimes and I realized it's always worth it when I put myself out there. So now I wrote live in draft mode because I want to remind myself, I haven't always done this, but when I put myself out there, I pretty much always am glad I did. And so I want something to remind me to continue to do that. So um, I'm going to move to a different question. I think this question, uh, it's uh, since I wrote the set of questions a long time ago, so I think this one changed, which is on your website, you have the sentence stated, I manage people, processes, and software development through a human-centered interaction paradigm. Everything in life, whether our daily work or the software we use, feel natively human and engage us both emotionally and cognitively. Alongside with the testimonials listed on the website, that you're more of a genuine leader who value people's emotion much more solely than getting the job done. Do you want to explain why you tend to go towards that approach? And if someone crosses the line with their action, let's say, what would you do? Since there will be time where there's a strict decision to do towards work. So you're more of a, I'm going to say this, you're more of a general leader who values people's emotions. So you might be the kind of person who doesn't want to break someone's heart. Uh, when they did do something, you might tell them like, hey, buddy, maybe we can do this or maybe we can <laughs> do that. There's no hard feelings. I'm not here to judge you. I'm, I'm here to give you the benefits. But there's sometimes be like someone screwed up big time and you're going to tell them, hey, you screwed up really big time. It's like, we can't, we can't be the nice person right here. You did something bad, which happens. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but why would I want to go towards everything as a human and engaging something emotionally and cognitively, especially in software? So I'll give, let's say an example. If I want to create something, let's say a CRM for technical people, it doesn't have to be something that's emotionally or cognitively inducing. It has to do just the job 
while other things might require you to do something more humane, right? Yeah. Let's say if you're building an application for someone, it might want to feel much more human-like. Let's say like you want to create a booking web app, let's say like Airbnb. You can't make it very non-human cognitively, emotionally, something that's going to attract the person to use the app at a certain level, if you want to elaborate more on this. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you would you would think that things don't always need to be engaging emotionally and cognitively. But when I say that, I don't necessarily mean you have a fuzzy animal that's, right, greeting you on the intro. Um, from my view of that, it's much more, there's this uh, framework called Octalysis that, um, let me see uh, what his name is, because I've forgotten... Uh, Yukai Chow um, wrote about Octalysis, which is a you know gamification framework, gamification, and kind of has a bad you know rap. But it's this idea that everyone in life needs epic meaning, accomplishment, empowerment, ownership, social influence, scarcity, unpredictability, and avoidance. So all of those things trigger emotional responses inside of us. And you don't necessarily want to use all of those things in a single application. But if you have two CRMs and one uses right behavioral design is a, a phrase that um, Yukai Chow mentions with Octalysis, right? If you design behaviorally so that the application connects with them on a deeper level, they will be less likely to cancel the subscription than one that is just completely functional. So absolutely, your first job is to say, okay, what are the tasks that this person needs to do? But then you say, how do I make that task the easiest thing and the thing that resonates with them the most, right? That causes them to want to do that thing. Right. Um, so I think that's definitely like a key aspect as far as software is concerned. Like you want to think about how this person feels, right? If you have a really slow CRM that every page takes a long time to load, that's going to make them emotionally frustrated, right? So it's keeping the human emotion and mental model in mind while you're building um, but not necessarily being explicitly emotional, right? Um, MailChimp, you know, ha always had these funny little sayings. That's great, right? That's more whimsy than emotionality to me. Um, emotionality is just observing and understanding what that user feels when they're engaging with your software and designing for that. Um, on the flip side, right, about people management, you nailed it. Like, I want to support people. Unfortunately, there are times you can't support people. Um, in fact, when I first became a manager, within six months, I had to fire someone. And like, <laughs> that sucks. Like, sometimes people go years with being a manager without having to fire someone. And it was, it was, you know, like you always remember that person's face when they look at you and they know that they don't have a job anymore. Like that's not something that um, you just brush off. Um, but ultimately the human centered paradigm says, I'm not just looking at one person. I'm looking at all the people, right? So as a manager, I have people 
a whole team that reports to me. And so ultimately what it happened was I got to the point where like I looked at someone, right, who wasn't doing the job. And I looked at the other humans on my team who were sometimes working overtime and they were putting everything they had into it. And I realized like looking at it from the human centered lens, like this is so unfair to all the other people on my team who are giving everything that they have and sometimes giving more than they should be because they're kind of picking up slack for someone else on the team. And, and they're all the same level. They're all getting paid the same, you know? And so in that place, while it hurt me to have to let that person go, like, and it took a little, I gave them a, I gave them a lot of grace. Like <laughs> I just kind of, you know, kept giving hints and I got more and more blunt uh, the further in we went until finally, you know, it was like, well, there's, there's not much else I can do here. And so ultimately my care for the other people that reported to me became the driver that said, now this person has to go because they're a detriment to the other people, um, you know, under, underneath my kind of, a view or underneath my guidance. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's all about protection and encouragement. Um, but how do I protect and encourage those people? Right. And sometimes, yeah, like it may hurt to have a hard conversation with someone. Um, but it's kind of like parenting, uh, for, for those, um, who may be listening, who are parents, right? Like sometimes you have hard conversations with your kids and it's like, you don't want to do that but you know it's in your kid's best interest to hear this. And so I think that's really what it comes down to, like remembering that the people I'm working with, the people I'm managing, the people I'm mentoring, my collaborators, like all those people are human and they have all this other stuff going on in their lives. And so I need to try to have as much empathy as possible. But at the same time, I also need to help them be everything that they can be. And so sometimes we'll have those rough conversations um, because they need it, right? When they get two years down the road and they do something better because I pushed them into an uncomfortable place, like they're going to look back and be like, man, I'm so glad that Eddie did that. You know, it was hard at the time. I was frustrated. I even thought, why the heck is Eddie making me do this? But they're happy that, you know, I did it in the long run. Um, so that's really how I, how I approach that and, and balance the hard times with keeping humans in, in mind. Like you're saying, some people might need like a, a hard push to realize something that they've done wrong. So you yep. might not realize that you're doing something that's bad until someone either points it out to you, but in a very tough way. Exactly. Yeah. And like, in the same way, it's kind of like the benefit of the doubt, right? Like most humans want to do the best job they can, right? So when I'm having a conversation with someone who isn't maybe doing the best that they could, am I going in and assuming that they're lazy and that they don't care? Or am I assuming that for some reason they're not seeing something or they're not understanding something rather than just not trying? And so by doing that, I can come in with a very human-centered approach of like, hey, did you realize you were supposed to be doing this? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know I'm supposed to be doing that. Okay. What does that mean to you, right? Because something, I think something might have gotten lost in translation. And uh, most of the time it's like, oh yeah, something got lost in translation. Like they didn't realize they were doing something a certain way or they didn't realize there was an expectation of them that wasn't being met. 
Um, and most of the time that covers. And occasionally you have the people who you know, kind of don't care. And then that leads to the previous conversation I just had, which is like, well, then you What you if there's an edge case? What if there's an edge case, for an example, let's say this is an edge case. Let's say I'm an employee. I have a, I have, let's say, I'm going to give an example. I'm 24, so it's not the current state, but let's say I'm a single dad mm-hmm. and I'm trying to raise a child and I barely have time between handling work and the child as an example. So yeah. I might have, let's say, uh, thoughts in my mind, let's say what I want to do to the child, but at the same time, this is occupying my mind on the work. So there are circumstances with people where they are pushed into a position that they is taking their mind out of work sometimes. So yeah. they might not be delivering as much as efficiently as someone else. Would you resolve towards giving them the same judgment as someone who's lazy? Or would you be like giving them more chances because they are in a situation, but eventually at the end, you'd be like, okay, I gave this guy or this person a a huge amount of opportunities to fix things up or to at least amp things up a little bit. I'm not seeing that much progress. So for the interest of the company, I might hire someone who can do the job, but there are use cases where you cannot just give the same treatment for someone who's just like lazy or laid back. He doesn't want to do the job. What's your take on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, right. The biggest, I think one of the reasons I, my values, right. Are used when choosing a job is so that I can choose companies that allow me to live with those values. Right. So for example, Glassdoor has unlimited PTO. Um, and it's a company that actually believes in unlimited PTO as opposed to like, Okay, we're going to say it's unlimited, but really no one's going to take any leave. Um, And so that's huge because now as a manager at Glassdoor, that means if I do run into someone with that situation, I can say, listen, like, do you need to take every other Friday off, like, so that you can deal with life stuff so that you can be more present during the days that you are working? Or like, do you just have a lot you need to get done and like, you need to take a week off now? and deal with all the stuff that's happening at home so that you can come back focused. Um, there's a lot of flexibility because we have that um, unlimited time that like as a manager, that equips me to deal with each person in their own unique circumstances, right? It's not like, oh, you're limited to three weeks. Sorry, like that's what it is. Um, it's like, that's that's huge. And some companies, I would be in a place where I had to like make that call. Like, listen, you have no more time off. Like you need to show up and do your job. Like, um, so definitely picking the company, right? Where I'm a manager at that allows me to live my values is a definitely a key part. And so 100%, I agree with you. Like, it's like, okay, what's going on in your life? How can I help support you, right? Let's get you like no one who's trying to work through all this chaos in their head is going to do a good job. It's always better to have someone work less hours, less time, but be clear headed than to give full time, you know, being distracted. And so it's like, okay, if I can get you some time and I can get you some focus and you're able to come back focused, like that's better for you and it's better for the company, right? It's better for everyone involved. And yeah, eventually, right. If things go on and on for a long time, then you start to have conversations and figure out, okay, like, what do you, you know, like, does this person actually need a part-time job rather than a full-time job, right? Like, start talking about their priorities in life, their circumstances in life, and like, what they need to be fulfilled and what they need to honor their life circumstances. 
And like, that's how I can come in and support them while at the same time also saying like, listen, this position, this is probably what we need, right? Like you're not going to work part-time hours for a year. Like that's not going to cut it. Um, and so just talking about what the company needs and what they need and figure out if it aligns. And if it doesn't, like, how can I support you to find the thing that you need? Right. Maybe they need to do part-time contracting. Maybe we have the flexibility to hire a part-time contractor. I don't know. Like, right. But having those conversations until you have those conversations, you don't know what, um, what someone needs. So. But if someone doesn't want to talk about those certain things, like they, kind of like want to keep it to themselves. They'll tell you, they'll brush it off, tell you like, oh, okay, nothing's going on. And they just want, don't want to have this hard conversation. Like sometimes talking about hard things is hard at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you deal with those? Yeah. I think, I think a key point there is, um, in, at Glassdoor, we have, um, we have this program I'm in called the journal lead program and stuff. And one thing we've been talking about in it is the difference between disclosure and vulnerability. Disclosure gives you details, but vulnerability gives you truth. So I don't always have to have disclosure, right? I don't have to know what's going on in your family, right? I don't have to know what's going on in your finances, but vulnerability is what I'm looking for. Vulnerability says, man, there's a lot going on in my family right now. Like, it's really hard to focus on work. Boom. That's it. Like, you don't have to tell me what it is going on in your family. As long as you say, I got a lot of personal family stuff going on. And I'm like, great. What do you need to be able to focus on that? Right? Let's get you some time so you can focus on that and come back, you know, focused. So that's really what I'm looking for is not disclosure of the details, but vulnerability about what they're experiencing in their life. And when we use that vulnerability, we can break through. If someone is completely shut down to being vulnerable at all, then, and they just keep saying, oh no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And they like, and I kind of pry and like, eventually I'm going to have to take them at their word that everything's fine, which unfortunately isn't great for them because if they say everything's fine, but they're not getting the results that they should be, if everything's fine, that's a mismatch. And I mean, then I, I have to honor their word. And at that point, we're probably going to have some hard conversations, but that's going to be after I've really tried to pry and like dig in and say, listen, like, I don't need to know what the details are, but it really seems like there's something going on that's keeping you from doing your best work. Like, you know, can we, can we talk about that a little bit? Like, I don't need to know the details, but you know, like, do you need some time off? Right. Like at some point I might even just say, listen, like it, it does seem like a lot's going on. Like, do you just need to take a week off and like, clear your head and work on some stuff and then come back focused. Um, and if like, no, 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 I'm fine. Like at some point I can't help someone if they don't want to be helped. Um, and that's kind of like the end of the road. Right. Unfortunately, but um, there's a lot like of levels less, before that. I'm going to give like a last edge case. Uh, I know I've been talking about this, but let's say for example, if someone wasn't talking about this certain issue, let's say, uh, let's say uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And when you tell him the tough, truth like hey buddy you're off the team because you're not that and they crack down and they start telling you disclose every single thing that they have a problem in so they finally cracked if you want to say <laughs> uh, would you change your perspective on the letting out or that's it you take the decision so let's say back to the 
single dad example, if let's say this, let's say I've been telling you like, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. You realize I'm not giving my optimal job. And then you're telling me like, Hey, uh, you're off the team because we expect this certain amount of tasks to be done. You didn't do them. And then I cracked. I told you like, Hey, I've been having this problem with my daughter. She's in the hospital. One, two, three, four, five. I've been telling you every single thing, but at the last minute, would you rethink about the whole letting off or would you just it like we've taken the decision, that's it, it's final, you should have talked to before? Yeah, so that's a great question. So typically before I let someone go, like I give some very strongly like worded language, right? Like, you know, things, things, things really aren't working with you here, right? Before I'm actually letting them go. So if they don't crack when I'm giving them, you know, some pretty strong signals in the one-to-one, -one, like, listen, if things don't start changing, like that's probably going to impact what, you know, your job here is like, um, that's their point to crack. If they don't crack for that point, like at some point I've filled out the HR paperwork and typically, um, at least in this remote world, like when people are let go, um, HR is involved, like, right. Like, it's not like, I just walk up to someone's office and I'm like, okay, you're fired. Like you fill out paperwork to fill out paperwork. You need proof, right? You need a paper trail of what they haven't been matching. So like once HR is involved, there's really pretty much nothing you can do. Um, yeah. So like if someone cracks once, it's actually like we're saying the words you're fired, then um, yeah, like there's, there's pretty much nothing you can do at that point. But my job as a manager is to make sure that I'm as explicit as I can be about their state before we actually get to that point. So that if they're going to crack, they'll crack in the one-to-one -one, one week before I file the paperwork with HR. You know what I mean? Like um, when I know that like I'm keeping notes about what is not going right and that I'm working on that for HR because it's not working, um, I'm going to have some, you know, strong, strong words in the one-to-one -one to just tell them that, listen, you're in a, you're in a bad place. Like <laughs> we need to change this, uh, or bad things are going to happen. And yeah, like at that point they've got to, they've got to break down and, and confess or there's, it's out of my hands. So I'm going to shift to a, a different question. Uh, I have taken a little bit of time on that, but it's good about talking about different case scenarios because we don't. I don't actually get to see them that much, but you get yeah. to see them on, on a daily, <laughs> I think. Yeah, you, for sure. You don't get, you, you don't fire people a lot these days, do you? <laughs> no, <Nope>. thankfully not. <laughs> no, uh, I'm going to shift to a different question, which is uh, as someone who works at Glassdoor, which is a hiring job review website, what are the qualifications that everyone should strive towards when aiming towards getting hired in the industry? So it's, it's more of a general question that what should I focus towards? What should I aim towards getting hired in the, in the industry? So let's say for example, someone might say, Hey, you should fix your GitHub profile, or you should have, let's say like a stack overflow account with a certain amount of, let's say streaks or a certain amount of questions answered. Some companies do care about those kind of things, which is very weird. <laughs> yeah. But, but what is your take on this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think some of the most important things is showing that like you can do the day-to-day -day work, right? So how do you show that? You show that by working on projects, right? Whether it's open source, 
whether it's something like the Collab Lab, where you work in teams, one of the most important things that companies care about when they're looking at, say, like a junior engineer, right, who's trying to break into the industry, one of the biggest challenges is like, okay, you can follow a tutorial and like you can put code together. But can you look at a task and figure out what needs to happen to make that work, right? Can you collaborate and communicate well with the colleagues on your team, with the product manager, with the designer? Um, those relationships and that those decisions um, and like troubleshooting, right? Those are the things that it's really hard to decipher in say like a junior engineer. Um, once someone's had like a sequence of jobs, right? Where they've done that stuff, then it's much more about like, okay, what kind of experiences are they looking at, right? Like if they're looking for React and someone has more React, then great. Like, or if they're looking for someone with geospatial knowledge and someone has more geospatial programming knowledge, like great. But when you're like junior and getting in the door, the biggest thing you can do is do projects with other people even if you don't get paid, right? Um, and freelancing is good. It's a good start to show that someone will pay you for your work. So I think kind of the combination of having someone pay you to program in some way, right? Freelancing or any other gig, and then working with other people to program because very few companies hire a single programmer to do a job. Most companies are hiring you to be on a team and how you work with a team is one of the biggest questions that they're going to be sorting through. So I think for me, that's the, the biggest stuff for getting a job. But what if, let's say for example, I've been in the industry for like a set amount of years, but when shifting between a job and another, I'm doing something different. So I'm in a newbie in a, some sort mm. of way. So let's say for example, uh, first year I did react and then the second year I shifted to a company that I did geospatial kind of things. And then the third year I shifted towards, let's say backend and then something else, let's say on a time period of, let's say like not five years, so give a smaller one, let's say on a period of two years, I've shifted between different companies, like a lot, let's say, and you've learned different kind of things. I'm still a newbie at some sort because I haven't put my hands super dirty into something for a while. So yeah. that makes me also a newbie. So when I go to a different company, what's your expectations? Like, oh, this guy's like two years in the industry, but he shifted a lot. What's the take on this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first thing as a job seeker that you have to think about is that it really depends on what they're looking for, right? They have an idea in their mind. Do they have a bunch of senior people and they just need more people like to be able to tackle tasks? Or are they looking at, needing people with some very specific knowledge. Uh, for example, when I was at Threat Connect, we had a large team with some really good people. And I knew the next person we hired had to know a lot about Angular and had to know a lot about the Angular CLI and build process, right? Because that was like with everyone on our team, that was the biggest missing hole. So like the thing you have to know is like sometimes the job that you're applying for, like, and you might get rejected. And it's not about you, right? It's about this company has a very specific hole that's missing on a team. And sometimes you just are unable to fill that hole. So I think that's the first thing to like be aware of is like, sometimes it's going to be a numbers game. There's going to be a bunch of companies out there and they've got positions open for holes that you just don't quite fill. And you just got to put a lot of applications out there. Um, 
last year in 2021, I did a job change, right? Ended up at Glassdoor. Um, but I sent 114 applications over 90 days with 63 companies. Um, you know, some of them never responded. Some of them rejected me. Some of them we had interviews and, um, some of them rejected me after interviews. Some of them I told no, right? No, because I didn't like the way things went. No, some I was interviewing with when Glassdoor made the offer. And I was like, I like the Glassdoor offer better than seeing what happens with this company. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell them I'm, I'm all done. I've accepted the job. Um, it took a lot, right? And this is me going from a director of engineering, which it's a startup. So really I was an engineering manager, right? Um, startups, you end up getting more loftier titles than, <laughs> than our reality. But um, as an engineering manager with over a decade of experience, I still had to go through all those companies, right? And there was all sorts of things. I was interviewing at everything from like an IC role to at one company, I was the going to be the head of engineering, um, you know, and so kind of everything in between. And, and I actually was with one company, it was a small startup. So there wasn't, you know, wasn't a whole bunch of people that would have been reporting to me, but I would have been the head of engineering. Um, and I was in the final like interview and it was me and one other person and they ended up choosing the other person. And, and that's fine. Looking back at it, um, like I feel blessed to be at Glassdoor and I don't think I would have had the flexibility and the experiences I'm getting at Glassdoor, even being the head of engineering at another startup. But, um, like that's just the the world you go through. You never know what's out there and you never know what you're going to find. But that said, um, if you're in a place where you're juggling this stuff, right, and you have a lot of short experiences or a lot of different technology, I think some of the biggest things, right, if someone's looking at you and saying, okay, you don't know a lot about this technology, the biggest thing you can do is show that you're a learner, right? Lean into all that experience. You got to take the bug and you got to make it a feature, right? The thing that someone may look at your resume or your job and think, oh, well, you don't qualify because of that. That's your selling point, actually, right? You have to think, how does this make me better than someone else, right? I can learn. I've learned five different programming languages in the last three years, right? <laughs> may not want to talk about the details of why you had to learn those five different programming languages, but like, but you did it, right? Um, the way you can learn, the way you can adapt, right? The way you think, like that's what you want to lean into because if they're hiring someone who hasn't had a lot of experience, they want to know that you're a go-getter. They want to know that you are a self-teaching person, that they're not going to have to teach you all these nitty-gritty things and it's not going to take two years for you to ramp up, but you can tell a story in the interview, right? In your bullet points on your resume, in the you know culture interviews, you can tell stories about, hey, how I started this new company and ramped up in 30 days and was doing this, this, and this. And like, what things did you complete in only 30 or 60 days that like no one else in the company was doing, right? Because you uh, you hopped in there, you ramped up really quick, and you were a rock star. And like showing how quickly you can have an impact is going to be huge when you are coming in without a lot of previous experience in that specific type of programming. Actually, uh, the whole point of being a learner uh, that earns you much more of a job. There's a, something that I've learned from a a hiring manager before is that it's easier to vet a curious beginner than to tame an experienced person. 100%. The reason Love why, that. The reason why, because the, the someone who's starting out, who's 
let's say for example, who's someone who's curious and starting out, you have a much more easier way to vet him to work on the company's code than someone who's experienced who already consumed different kind of companies' ideologies, and he will start forcing his ideologies on you. Then the curious person, you tell him like, hey, you should do one, two, three. And the curious person will be like, okay, I'll do them. Like, I'll, I'll do them that. While the experienced person might come up and say like, yeah, this doesn't work with me. I'm not going to do this. And you might want him to do this and be like, nope, I'm not going to do that. So uh, as someone who's actually curious and starting out, it's, it's a selling point because companies be like, okay, I can vet someone who can work for me and I can make him do what I want which is what I want in a company. But but at a certain level, you might realize that some of the company's ideologies are kind of skewed a little bit at some level. So they might tell you like, hey, this is how things happen. But in a different company, they might tell you this is an easier way to do it. You don't have to pull yourself into doing all of this to do this. But the whole idea of being a curious uh, person is a selling point by itself. Yeah, absolutely. But why would you resolve towards sending that much applications in a 90 day period? Is it like, uh, you want to get into a higher position paycheck wise? It's like every single person that I knew who changed jobs has a different point of view of this. So yeah. someone actually, they say that they changed jobs after a period of time because they increased their salary. Some people might say, Hey, I got bored at this job. I'm just changing to a different job because I want to feel something new at a certain level. What is your point of view on this? Uh, if you, yeah. if you like to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've changed jobs for all sorts of different reasons. Right. Um, sometimes, yeah, I don't feel like I'm getting paid enough. Other times I don't see like I'm kind of bored in my current position and I don't see a weight path of growth. Right. Um, so sometimes I'm just looking for more pay for a similar position. Other times I'm looking for a promotion and there's no promotions available at the company I'm at. Um, I think definitely, um, you know, I, I left my last job over pay. Um, I felt like I was very underpaid. Um, I actually used Glassdoor, um, <laughs> salary info that's on their website, um, which ends up in retrospect being really funny, but I was bringing that to my manager and saying, listen, like I'm getting paid, you know, this much less than other people, you know, with similar, uh, job titles. And, um, yeah. And they were not receptive to those conversations. And so my biggest thing was trying to get, you know, what I felt was comparable pay. And so, yeah, in the past, I sometimes haven't even gone on a job hunt. Like oftentimes I've had like a couple of recruiters reach out to me and I'm like, sure, I'll have that conversation. And, you know, one thing leads to another and then I end up with a job. Um, this was kind of, this last summer was one of the biggest times I did a big job search. And so, yeah, definitely one of my biggest things was I was like, all right, it's time to make sure I'm getting paid what I'm worth. And one of the ways that, so there's a couple of things, right? One, I was applying to a lot of big name companies, right? Um, I applied to Glassdoor. I, you know, applied and was interviewing with Square. Um, uh, I don't know. There's too many companies to go through them all, right? And some of them, like, you know, never heard back from Google and Netflix. Surprise, surprise. Like, that's okay. One day I'll hear back from Google and Netflix. <laughs> um, but 
you know, so I, I threw out a bunch of applications. Some were at startups where I could actually like lead engineering teams, you know, others were at big companies that, you know, but the other thing is I know over time, I've learned that when you have a job offer, the best way to get the most money is to make sure you have competing job offers, right? If someone offers you a job and they say, we're going to give you, you know, $50,000 and you say, I would like $60,000, please. Uh, they'll be like, uh, why? You know, like, you know, sometimes if they aren't too worried about it, they'll give you the $60,000. But um, at, at the other way, like if someone's like, here's $50,000 and you're like, oh, well, I just got an offer for $70,000. They'll be like, oh, how about we give you $65,000 or $75,000? We'll even beat them. Um, you'll get the job that you really want with more money if you have a job you don't want as much that pays money as like an offset offer. So um, that was definitely also another factor was I knew a couple things, right? One, the other thing is if you are already in interviews, oftentimes they can move you faster through the interview process. So there's many times like I hop on a call with a recruiter and they're like, hey, like, are you, you know, at the end of the call, they're like, are you interviewing with any other companies? You know, what kind of stage of the interview process are you at? And um, I'm like, oh, I'm in final interviews or on sites with like three other companies. They're like, oh, okay, let's, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna expedite this as quick as possible, right? <laughs> um, I got you on this one. Yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't be, wouldn't be easier, let's say, instead of, sometimes you might offer, let's say, a salary, but it's a low ball than what they're, actually giving wouldn't it be easier to be like asking them hey what's the budget for the role instead of lowballing yourself yes um typically i try to lean towards the budget um depending on the company right like oftentimes they'll ask you well what's your range and yeah then like you said they'll kind of lowball your range a little bit and stuff so there's a whole bunch of nuances there um yeah so it's it, it's it's tricky but definitely I didn't have a specific company I was like, I want to work at. I was like, I want to work at a bigger company, a more well-known company, and I want to make some good money. And so I was like, I'm just going to spray out applications everywhere and, and see what happens. Um, I actually, I left the com I left my existing company, Threat Connect, um, before I had a job. So I kind of had like, you know, one of those kind of... Um, you know, month or two breaks. So I also like one reason I applied was because I wanted to get a job fairly quickly because I didn't want to be out of a job for like six months, but also I had full time. So I basically was interviewing almost full time, uh, like almost like a full time job, but it allowed me to go through all these different companies. And uh, yeah, I mean, ending up at Glassdoor, I just feel, feel blessed. So uh, it worked. <laughs> So I'm going to shift to a different question is that sure. uh, it's a very different, different question. That's not technical, which is uh, you host a podcast called web joy. The goal of the podcast is to bring lighthearted, diverse conversations with people across the tech industry about their origin stories and what brings them joy. Similar, I think to what we're having right now, a certain yeah. level. Would you like to talk more about the podcast, why you resolved towards creating a podcast in the first place? And it's, is it the first time you created a podcast before? Yeah, great question. Um, so yeah, as far as the first time, no, I um, I have created some podcasts before. I think it's the biggest and largest project I've worked on. 
Um, I did some smaller, like I did a smaller interview podcast for a little while um, about something called the Indie Web. And basically I was interviewing people like about their websites and about what they'd done on their websites. Um, kind of community-based podcast. I did, did a couple episodes um, and that ended up falling off. I also did like kind of one of those standard like tech uh tech chatting uh podcast for a little while i had a co-host um and my co-host and i it was called two dads talking and so we were both dads um and what the tagline was faith family and tech or tech faith and family or something like that um but basically we both loved tech we love fiddling with tech we love talking about apple and stuff um, we both, you know, we're dads. And so it's like, well, how does technology, right. Work in our families? Um, and yeah. And faith didn't come up a whole lot, but we both had similar faith backgrounds. So, um, we kind of tie, you know, tied that in, but, um, so that we did for off and on like once a month or something like that for a year or something. But, um, then I had my most recent child and we both got pretty busy. So we, we let that one fall to the side, but WebJoy is definitely the biggest project I've picked up. I worked on it like for several months before it even got released. Um, we've only released 17 episodes, but I have about 50 recorded. <laughs> that's, so it's, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> it's massive. Um, and I've been so blessed, like just all the different people that I've been able to get to be on it. Um, you know, as you mentioned, right, the goal is diverse conversations. I, I've looked for people who literally are like, you know, executive leadership in companies. Like I started off with Jason um, and at uh, develop, you know, kind of head of developer experience at Netlify. And I've also interviewed people who literally are just learning technology. Um, at the time of recording this, the next episode to come out um, is actually going to be with someone named Kat. And she decided to drop out of medical school to learn programming. So she's currently going through a boot camp. Um, she hasn't gotten a job in tech yet, um, right? But like, what made her have that decision, right? And decide to drop out of medical school and pursue technology uh, was a really interesting conversation. And so, you know, that was a really interesting episode as well. So having these episodes where it's like, okay, you have people who, you know, just are looking to get into tech, people who have been in tech for a couple of years, um, as well as people who are, you know, ex at the executive level and really also not just developers, but designers and product managers. And um, I have a conversation with a recruiter on there that's coming up in a little while. And so, yeah, just a whole bunch of, of different people and conversations and really just kind of getting a feel for like how wide and deep the tech industry really is. Cause I feel like we can get really myopic, right? That was kind of my goal was I kind of wanted to like take all the blinders off of people. Um, oftentimes I just kept seeing on tech Twitter, like fighting about tailwind or fighting about remix <laughs> versus next JS. And I just got sick of all the negativity, right? It's like, well, people oftentimes can't just be happy that someone else has something they like. like. Instead, they have to go and spit on it. And it's like, don't just spit on something. Like, it's okay that you don't like Tailwind or that you don't like Remix, right? Or you don't like Next. Um, it's okay that you feel like 
Remix is better than Next, right? Or that you think Remix is just trying to shortcut Next or, you know, whatever else. Like, but people can like multiple things. So for example, I had one episode uh, with a former coworker that I introduced to Miro. And our whole conversation was about how cool Miro was uh, as a whiteboarding software and how he like used that to connect his team at the beginning of the pandemic and build out like a team really focused on singular mission. And then an episode that released somewhat recently um, at the time of the recording, this, uh, they actually had used Miro for a long time and then they started using fig jam. And so they actually in the podcast say, Oh, bye-bye Miro. Like I'm using fig jam. And so I just love that. I can have a podcast where one person talks about how awesome Miro is. And the other one is like, I'm leaving Miro for fig jam. Cause here's all the cool things I like about fig jam. And we didn't talk bad about Miro. They even mentioned that Miro is like really cool, but they talk about what they really enjoy and appreciate about fig jam, which um, was really cool. So yeah, that's, that's what it's all about and kind of what inspired it. I want to just highlight on two things. Uh, number one, there's a, I think there's a tweet from the guy who created solid JS on Twitter. He said, uh, just use what works. Like, just don't fight over things. Just just use what works. Like, he gave a compliment about React, which is very weird because he's the guy who created SolidJS, and he's, like, telling you, hey, just use what works best. Like, you don't have to use this specific thing just because you like it. Just use what works best for the project. I remember this tweet. Like, he's, like, the ending all wars. It's like, okay, just use, just use what works. But... Recording more than fifty episodes without releasing them—that's uh, that's 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 a lot, man. Like, well, that I, I didn't record all fifty before releasing any of them. I just like I recorded like I don't know fifteen or twenty before I started releasing them, and then I kept recording instead of stopping. And so now I've gotten to to about fifty. That'll be released between. Uh, we're recording in September. Uh, sorry for breaking people's mental model since I'm not sure when this is being released, but um, between September and uh, December, we're releasing the rest of those. So, I actually took a different approach. I was like, I'm just going to contact someone. It's like, I'm going to set up questions and just do like, make it very basic. It's like, I'm not going to go record, 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 because I have a lot of things to do in my life. So I was like, I'm going to make this a lot more easier. It's like, I'm going to contact this person and tell them like, hey, this week I'm free. If you're free, we can do it. But I would have, let's say, a set of people. I just want to just uh, give a, like a shout out to Polywork. I've put like an just an uh, opportunity to get people on the podcast. And I got like 75 people in a row. Like one day. That I was is like, so cool. And here's the, here's the thing. I did this podcast as an experiment. I first started out like talking about topics and one of my friends told me like, Hey, uh, how about you do interviews? I was like, okay. And he hooked me up with two people at Amazon as my first two guests. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue on this. I kind of like this. So when Polywork first launched up, a friend of mine gave me like an invite code because it was invite only. It's now general public. Uh, to the people so it was like invite only and they introduced opportunities and i was like 
Hmm, let's see. I'm going to do an experiment right now. I'm going to post this opportunity. I'm looking for guests for the podcast. Let's see what's going to happen. So I posted it, let's say, on 2 p.m. I, I went to the gym at like 6. I finished my gym session and there's like 75 emails and they're like <laughs> popping up more and more. It's like people telling me like, hey, we're interested. We're interested. We're interested. It's like, well, I, I think I've set up for the year, but I'm taking yeah. it very slow. I'm taking it very slow. It's like I go with someone, uh, I tell them like, hey, do you want to do this? They might tell me like, okay, I want to do this. Take my time onto it. I don't want to pressure myself and the other person. So I would just like do it one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. But recording 50 men, I, would, I, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> it's so hard on me. I, I don't recommend it. Um, yeah, I think the the path you're doing if is I had, similar. If I had more time, let's say if I had, let's say, um, days where I don't have that much work or I have other applications, I would say, yeah, I would do a couple of days on the week. Uh, let's say after work, I would do like one interview or two interview and then record them, release them by time. I would say, yeah, but I, I couldn't do something similar. <laughs> I like to take it very easy on me. Yeah, well, and you have to set up the podcast to to support that, right? So your your podcast is great; it's really in depth. You take a lot of time, right? You've done a lot of prep work uh, behind the scenes for people. Like he had all sorts of questions written out ahead of time, which is awesome. He did his research, um, so you do a lot of that stuff, which is great, and um, it turns out into a great long episode. Um, the only way I've been able to record so many with WebJoy is I basically tell the person, "Hey." I'm going to talk about your origin story. I'm going to ask you what you find joy in. And then we're going to, you know, have time for like a shout out of something you've been involved in or something you've produced for people. And it's going to be 30 minutes max. Like I schedule a 30 minute time slot. And at the end of that 30 minute time slot, we stop it and we leave. And so, um, very short, very compressed. We hop in the call and I'm like, okay, let's hit these three points. And we just have a conversation from those points and whatever it turns into, it turns into. But um, that's the only way I've been able to record that many is keeping it tight, keeping it concise, um, which generates a very specific type of episode um, as opposed to yours, which is a different feel. And I think I, I love this feel. And I don't think, like you said, you could mass produce um, an episode like this. So I like it. I remember I did an episode like three and a half hours with one person. It's oh, like wow. three, yeah, three and a half hours. It's like it's it's like Joe Joe Rogan level kind of things. Like you sit with someone, you just like talking with him all the time. Yeah, it's yeah. It was like the first experience I take episodes, but usually most episodes are like one hour ish range. Nice. So they have like this consistency of one hour, two hours. Mostly, I would say like an hour and a half is like my sweet spot. I would say. But three hours and a half, and this, this, is, this is the fun part. Three hours and a half, and we have like a half an hour before we started and half an hour after we started. So if you want to oh say gosh. like four hours and a half. So it's like four hours and a half talking with someone. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was intense. It was, it was really intense. I returned back home. I crashed on my bed and I slept. But it was yeah. really a good episode. I got someone who started the engineering team at Facebook in the UK. And oh, he cool. talked about his experience about how he started the whole thing. 
along with other stuff he did at Facebook. It was it was pretty it was a pretty interesting episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm gonna. I always end the episode with a mental health question. It's something that I have. I've done it with all episodes. I love doing it for the sake of releasing the last question for talking about uh, a mental health thing. Have you ever faced burnout or imposter syndrome? And if you did, then what do you do to resolve this issue? The reason why I talk about mental health at the end of the episode is because I like to decompress things at the end. And mental health is something we face in the industry. A lot of people report back that they face a lot of imposter syndrome, burnouts, depression because of the field, over how demanding it is or how stressful it is. You sit in front of a screen most of the time. Some people might develop social anxiety because they're not meeting with people. The list goes on. I'm not going to get into much into details of it, but would you like to share about your experience on it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't know if I face burnout as much, but definitely imposter syndrome. I mean, I find I, I face imposter syndrome at pretty much almost every like job I get, um, particularly anytime I change roles. So I was like, I was, um, and I, I didn't always realize it was imposter syndrome. I went from being a government contractor to like this new design agency that was doing all this modern code in Angular. And I was used to using some older code and it just felt like I never, it felt like I, I didn't know what was going on with Angular. All these other people were doing really cool things and they knew like how to use the framework. Um, and it was just, I felt like all these people are so modern and I'm so behind, right? Um, and then like, I, you know, when I became a manager, it's like, okay, I'm a manager, but everyone who was on my team had been at the company longer, you know? So I was still figuring out the code base. I was still figuring out how the company like operated and like, I didn't know a whole lot when I became an engineering manager about like what our tool did. I had just worked on some features before that. And so I felt intimidated, right. In, in that role, um, to add that to that intimidation, my, like I joined the company and I had a manager that manager, uh, ended up becoming an individual contributor, um, on the team. And then I became the manager. We kind of did a, a swap. Um, because he went international and so he couldn't maintain the manager duties. So I literally was managing the person who had been my manager, like for months before that. Uh, so that, that was intimidating, you know, um, to be in every meeting and have the person who used to make the decisions like in there and like in the back of your head, you're like, am I making the right decision? Like, do they, you know, like, would they have made a better decision? Um, and yeah, like, I think obviously starting at Glassdoor, I mean, like so intimidating because I've only been at smaller companies and suddenly like I got to Glassdoor and I was hired on as a lead engineer and I looked around and I was looking around at like the people who were senior engineers. And I was like, these people are so good and they're seniors. And then I'm looking around at the leads and I'm like, how did they do what they're doing? Like, how am I going to be a lead here? Like I was terrified. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I've really 
pushed against imposter syndrome by reminding myself that imposter syndrome is telling me, like when I feel those feelings, that fear, right? Um, that's telling me that I'm in a place that I don't have a lot of experience, right? It, it's telling me that I'm stretching myself. I'm trying something new and kind of bringing it back to earlier. Like I, I lean into my values, right? That I'm living in draft mode. Like I don't always know what I'm doing, uh, but I just got to give it my best shot. I got to do the best that I can. And um, it was amazing. Like I felt, I felt imposter syndrome for the first uh, three, four months at Glassdoor. And at some point it started to fade away as I felt more competent there and didn't even like realize it. Um, it just slowly faded away. And at six months at the company, like I was doing a talk for all of engineering about TypeScript. And like that really like resonated and the whole company is moving towards TypeScript now. And six months after that now, right? So now a year in, I got moved from a lead engineer to engineering manager for a whole new team that like the team didn't really exist. They kind of had formed a temporary team by pulling people from across the company. And then they decided to solidify it and they shifted me into that engineering manager role. And if you had told me that's where I would be a year before that, like I would have said you were crazy. Like I was like, I'm intimidated. I'm just figuring out this whole big company, much less that I would be like proposing a shift across the entire company, you know, front end engineering to move to TypeScript uh, in a public talk and then becoming an engineering manager, which actually my team is now with Next.js. Like we are also doing TypeScript. So like now I am managing the team that is literally going to implement TypeScript across the company. And it's like, I never could have believed that I'd be there a year before. Um, but I just leaned in and said, okay, I'm in a new place. I'm uncomfortable. And I just got to do the work. I got to focus on the work. And eventually I know the imposter syndrome will fade away because it always has before. But I promise, uh, you know, when I do, when I go to a new company or a new job, um, and even, I mean, I'm going to be, I'm going to be real vulnerable here. And I'll be honest. I face a little bit of imposter syndrome in this new role at Glassdoor. I'm leading a team. So I was a lead engineer at Glassdoor, which already felt like a little bit of a stretch, right? Then I became an engineering manager. Now the people who report to me, I've got a senior engineer who, you know, they're basically on the cusp of a promotion, right? Like they're, they're at the top of their game. Um, I'm sure at some point soon they'll be promoted to a lead. I've got another lead engineer on that team. And then I've got a principal architect on that team. He has so many years in programming. Like it's just, it blows my mind. And I am their manager. Like somehow I have to, right, come in and help coordinate them. And somehow if they run into a hard time, like be their bouncing board or give them feedback, uh, and they're rock stars. Like, how do you be an engineering manager rock stars? I don't know. I got to figure it out. Um, you know, I've only been in this specific team role now for a couple of months. Uh, but yeah, I hope, I hope in six months or a year from now, I can be like, hey, that, that was scary. But I figured out how to manage a team of rock stars. And uh, I'm sure there'll be something new coming up that I'm starting to feel imposter syndrome by then. But you might actually have a very good role. Like even if you have leads and rock stars, you might have someone who's been experienced more like that. But your role is still 
to chaperone them, spread joy at a certain level. They might feel bumped out to be like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna scooch in. I'm gonna spread some joy into you and make you love the thing that you're trying to do. So don't feel kind of intimidated by the role that you have, even if it's quite intimidating, but it's, it's gonna get better by time. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not gonna, it's not gonna end up on something worse. Like it's not gonna, <laughs> most people, the problem with imposter syndrome, I'm just gonna say it very bluntly from my perspective is that they fear imposter syndrome for two things. Either they feel that you are not up to the job or you might feel that someone else might take your job. Mm -hmm. So sometimes imposter syndrome is not just like, I'm not able to do the job. Sometimes some people would say, okay, I got the job, but I'm afraid this person is better than me that I'm afraid that the company will say, okay, I think we're going to switch roles a little bit. So this guy fits your position much more. We're going to do a switch. Some people fear this. So depends on the context of where you're dealing with, the imposter syndrome will hit different. So it's that not just sense. always about lack of skills, but rather you might have the skills, but you might afraid someone takes your role. Mm. No, that, that makes complete sense. So that's, that's the difference between the imposter syndrome because each person has a different perspective of it. So you might be in a company, let's say you're in a, now at Glassdoor, you're basically like a, a fish in a big pond. So you see a lot of people. So you might afraid someone from a different department might take your job, but mm. the possibility for it to happen, it's a little bit less, but you're just filling scenarios in your head just because you're afraid at some level. Absolutely. But it's totally fine. It's totally fine. It's part of what the human brain does sometimes. Yep. Yeah. The human brain, right? Like we we're adapted, right? For the fight or flight and like, you know, determining threats. And like, sometimes there's not a threat to our livelihood, you know, but like our brain is hardwired to look for the threats everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah.